singularity. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. My name is Nicola, a.k.a. Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. If you guys support, want to support the show, you can do so in one of two ways. Number one, you can go to iTunes and write a brief review. Or number two, you can simply go to my donations page and make a donation. So today, my guest on the show is uh, Gary Marcus. Gary is a professor of psychology at NYU and the author of a number of books on neuroscience, psychology, and learning, such as The Birth of the Mind, The Norton Psychology Reader, and Cluj, The Haphazard Construction of the Human Mind. Gary has written also for The New Yorker and The New York Times about the facts and fictions of neuroscience, moral machines, and more, most recently about Ray Kurzweil's dubious new theory of mind. Hi, Gary, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic. So, Gary, uh, I have to admit that I discovered you and your work after reading your article in The New Yorker about uh, Ray Kurzweil and his dubious theory of mind, as you call it. Um, so that's the main reason that I wanted to invite you on the show. But before we get there, I'd like to get an idea how we even got there to begin with. So the first question that I want to ask you is, what is psychology and how did you get to be interested in you personally, interested in it personally? Well, psychology is the study of the human mind. I don't think it's the only way to study it, but it's one of the academic disciplines. I actually consider myself to be a cognitive scientist. Um, and cognitive scientists try to bring together psychology, philosophy, linguistics, computer science, and so forth. I happen to be in an academic department of psychology, but my mission is to understand the human mind using whatever techniques are necessary. How I got there personally is actually through computers. So uh, when I was about eight years old, I was given a paper computer to play with, which was something like a Turing machine. You had a tape that you would pull through. Um, you could write down instructions on it and, and so forth. And the very day that I got it, I was already giving lessons in how to use it. I took to it really naturally. And I was actually on television that night explaining how it worked. Um, so I, I had you know early feedback that I was good at computer programming and I liked it and, and got really into it. And that led me to try to build AI programs. And um, actually, the way I got into college, I skipped the last couple of years of high school. The way I got into college was I wrote a um, program in uh, Logo, which is sort of like Lisp, um, that would translate Latin into English. So by the time I was in high school, I was already trying to do AI. And I was also realizing at that time that I wasn't really ready to do it. I had the programming chops, but I didn't have powerful enough computers. But more than that, I didn't really know enough about how the human mind was doing these things. So I was interested in natural language processing, for example. And I realized I didn't know enough about about how the human mind did its reasoning, did its language, and so forth. And so I kind of um, took a long time out from AI to really understand the human mind. And I wouldn't say that I yet have fully understood the human mind, but I've come back uh, recently to AI and, and thinking about the relation between machines and people and so forth. That's a, that's a fascinating personal story because um, as far as I know, there's not perhaps too many psychology professors who have gotten to to be interested in psychology via computers and, and programming and, and artificial intelligence and language translation and all that. Is that a unique way of getting there? Do you think that you're sort of, you have a different background than most of your colleagues in that sense? I wouldn't say I'm unique, but I would say I'm unusual. So there's certainly other people in, in academic psychology that come from a strong computational background, but it certainly colored my research. So I'm much more interested in computational issues than most people in psychology. Almost all of the work that I've done in some way bears on the question of what kind of a computer is the human mind. And so I've worked, for example, on neural network models, and um, I've been critical of a lot of those models. The questions there were always, is the brain a kind of symbol manipulating device, or how, what kind of computation is the brain doing? That's probably actually the core question. There are a lot of questions that I've worked on, but that's probably the deepest core question. I always think about things in terms of, well, if I were going to build a computer program to do this, what would I get? And would it be the same? Would it be different? So you mentioned, for example, my book, Kluge, and there I argue there are certain ways in which our computation is not as efficient as it might be in a machine. But always 
machine has been for me the reference point. Now I'm thinking about what we do better than machines, but I'm always trying to say, well, computers are sort of like the null hypothesis that we should be comparing to. They're, they're the best understood thinking device in the world. Humans are not as well understood a thinking device. You could argue that we're better at what we do or worse. It depends how you think about it. But computers are the clear analog. Just like I think in the early days of flight, people wanted to say, well, how do birds fly? And are we going to build our airplanes to work in the same way or a different way? And the ultimate answer is we don't want to just recreate birds. We want to build something that works in a certain way even better. But we can't you know, get off the ground literally or metaphorically until we understand you know, the relation between natural systems and artificial ones. Mm-hmm. I see. Uh, so perhaps now is the time for me to ask you about your own personal theory of mind and, and what do you mean by saying that the mind is a kluge? Um Well, I would say that's only part of my theory of mind, but uh, we can take that part first. So when I say that the mind is a kluge, um the kluge is a word I borrowed from engineers and now computer programmers use it, and it's a clumsy solution to a problem. It's like using duct tape and rubber bands, like MacGuffin. <laughs> trying to get the job done, but not necessarily in the most beautiful way possible. And if you look at our evolutionary history, it can be no other way. So sometimes in evolutionary psychology say, well, what would make sense for our ancestors to do? But that's only part of the picture. So there are considerations from optimal function. How would you build an optimal system? But evolution is not some guy in a lab who can say, this didn't work, let me start from scratch. Evolution keeps building new solutions on top of old solutions, even when that's not the right way to go. Um, a famous phrase from um, uh, Francois Jacob is that evolution is a tinker, which is basically the same thing. Evolution tinkers, and what you get is kludges. And so part of my theory about how the human mind works is it doesn't work perfectly efficiently. It has its beautiful parts, and it has its inelegant parts. And part of our mission as psychologists, as cognitive scientists, is to figure out which is which, which parts do work efficiently, which ones don't, why do the inefficient ones work inefficiently. So one of the examples that I give in that book, Kluge, is about how human memory works. I think that that's a very poorly designed system relative to what we're trying to make it do. So if you think historically, going back to um, much simpler creatures, often a very loose sense of memory is good enough. You don't need to remember particular examples. You just need to remember what's happened in this context before. So I'm in this side of the room, and I want to know, or let's say I'm on this side of the mountain. What's typical of this side of the mountain? You just need a statistical summary of your experience. But if you're a modern human being, you need more than that. You need to remember particular examples. So if you give eyewitness testimony, you don't want to remember what crimes are like in general. You want to remember that particular crime. And the way that our memory evolved, we're really just mostly good at this general tendencies and not so good at specific information. Um, if you look at a computer, there's a brilliant solution to the problem of organizing memory, which is to have a master database that says where everything is going to be stored. So you can retrieve things by their location in that memory. But as far as I can tell, evolution never hit on that. It's not... <laughs> I don't know where you know a particular fact is stored in my memory. Like where where is the first time I heard Ray Kurzweil's name stored in my memory? I have no idea. And not only don't I have any idea, but my brain doesn't. So my brain's not very reliable at that task. I can't actually tell you when the first time I heard Kurzweil's name is. Um, a computer could organize these things much better, but we just don't have this magical thing called location addressable memory. Instead, our memories are driven by kind of reminders. So if I were in the same spot maybe in my mom's house where I first heard Kurzweil's name, that might actually serve as a cue to remind me. But short of that, if I'm not in the same place at the same time, I might not be able to come up with that fact. Mm-hmm. So, so do you think that uh, sort of reverse engineering the human brain uh, could come to be very useful with respect to creating AI? Well, that's a subtle question. And for me, it hinges on what you mean by the brain versus the mind. So in principle, there's, a, there's several different ways we might do that kind of project. So the project is, let's see how humans do it, and let's use that to build better machines. And I think that's a great project. I, I think we should be doing that. Um, but there's a question of the level of analysis. So you wouldn't want to model the human brain at the atom level and try to use that to build a more intelligent system. There are too many atoms involved. There are too many interactions. We can't efficiently do that with you know, reasonable-sized computers on, on, you know, that fit on the planet Earth. So that's low a brain level to be informative. Um, then you could ask, well, what if we model things at the level of individual neuron? And so far, that hasn't been very fruitful. So people have, for 20 years, had the wiring diagram of the nematode worm, the C. elegans worm, and we still don't know how to 
even that worm works. So it's possible in principle that we might reverse engineer the brain in order to better understand how human beings to solve things, build better artificial intelligence systems. But my bet is that we might actually have more of a profit by looking at how the human mind works. So looking at things at a psychological level rather than the level of individual neurons. Eventually the individual neurons are going to tell us a lot, maybe more than we can learn from psychology. But in the short term, there's so many interactions going on between those neurons and we have so little understanding about what they are that I wouldn't put my own personal money there. There are some big projects um, to try to you know, model the brain neuron by neuron, but I don't think in the short term that's going to tell us that much. You could think if you were trying to understand how a car worked, would you want a model of that car at the level of the individual atom or would you maybe more want a more abstract model where you try to understand, say, what cylinders and pistons are doing without getting too bogged down in where each individual atom is? So you think that the key is kind of at the crossroad, at the intersection between neuroscience and psychology, where in the short term, getting the psychology right is more important, and then neuroscience would come to bear fruit in much longer term. Exactly. And you use the word intersection there, um, but that reminds me of another word that I should have thrown in, which is bridge. So part of what do is to bridge between the psychology and the neuroscience. Empirically, what often happens is the neuroscience works from the bottom up, from the level of the neurons, and the psychologists work on the top of the sort of more complicated things like ideas, emotions, beliefs, desires, uh, sentences, and so forth. And what we really want is to be able to understand the connection between the two. So biology went forward by leaps and bounds when you could take Mendel's abstract idea of a factor, a gene, and connect that to the DNA molecule. So, you know, building a bridge like that causes a field to explode, but we haven't quite gotten there yet in neuroscience. I hope we will in my lifetime, but we're not there now. Mm -hmm. So so what do you think of, of projects such as, for example, um, Henry Macram's uh, Blue Brain Project uh, or Randall Kuhn's uh, Whole Brain Emulation Project? or the Hamantra Modha's Synapse project, which is uh, an IBM project funded by DARPA. And each of those are working on a particular way of, of addressing that, those issues that you've mentioned, I think. Well, so those are all working essentially at the neuron level. Yes. Uh, and I think that the investment in them relative to the investment in psychology is disproportionate. So um, Arkham is in the process of trying to raise a billion dollars, um, not billion, but a billion dollars um, to build this brain model. And I think a lot of other neuroscientists are skeptical that that's the best way to spend that magnitude of money. So... He, Markram has built some smaller scale models, and I don't think that they've really told us that much either about how the brain works or certainly about how the mind works. So I think that it's a valuable work, but I'm not sure that I would sort of go all in um, to spend a billion dollars on it if I were the funding agency. I think <laughs> about like in particular bridging projects where you look at some small thing, some small aspect of cognitive psychology and say, how is this particular aspect grounded uh, in particular details of the neuroscience? I think it's more realistic that we're going to figure out the worm before we're going to make this whole model of the human brain. I don't think we're in a position to spend that money well at this point. Mm -hmm. I so see. If I were a funding agency, I would certainly give Markram some money. I don't think it's a project without value, but I, w I wouldn't invest quite so heavily in that because there's only a finite amount of money for science, and I don't think it's the most efficient. So thing. what would be a, an alternative uh, project which comes at the issue from the psychology point of view. Is there I, one? I think psychology needs to spend more effort looking at how cognitive computations could, in principle, be uh, embodied in, in uh, neural systems. So there was a big um, kind of boomlet to try to do that in the mid-'80s, and people had these things they called neural network models. And mm -hmm. the, I think those had exactly the right goal, although the implementation wasn't right. So the goal was, hey, let's say, how, how could you put a bunch of neurons together to build an intelligent circuit? And I think the details of how they did it didn't work. I think that they tried uh, models that were just too simple, be sort of like trying to build a radio using only transistors and not resistors and capacitors. They kind of, for political, sociological reasons, restricted themselves to a very small set of basic elements. And it didn't really work. You could get some basic results, sort of first approximations, but things never seemed to work in great detail. And 
I think that's because they were re- restricting themselves, probably not even to the transistors, just to the resistors. Um, and you need logic gates, really, is what you need. They weren't allowing themselves those components in those neural network models. I think psychology needs to explore the broader question that those guys were, like Rummelhard and McClellan, were thinking about, um, and Hinton to some extent, and open up, reopen that topic. It's been sort of lost. In recent years, people have worked on Bayesian models, which have their own value, but don't give this mechanistic account of the connection, the bridge between neurons and psychology. And they've worked on brain imaging, which I think at the moment is too coarse a tool to answer these questions. So I would like to see a little bit more money spent on just entertaining hypotheses, essentially, building models of different architectures in which neurons could support cognition. I think that's a really valuable project that's not getting enough attention right now. So so let me give you this sort of the ignorant man's take on, on, on that, like me, for example. Um, so how I'm trying to understand now, if we're building artificial intelligence, obviously that wouldn't carry the evolutionary psychological baggage that humans have. Mm-hmm. So how would it be beneficial if we sort of discover the uh, the psychological baggage of humanity uh, with respect to creating artificial intelligence? Uh, that's what I'm trying to get here. It's an excellent question. Um, and because I, artificial I think- intelligence obviously wouldn't have any of that evolutionary bias. I mean, one of the benefits of AI would be that we'll be building it more or less from scratch, right? We wouldn't have two billion years of evolution behind it. That's right. So um, I, I think you're putting two two of my ideas together in a way that I wouldn't put them together. So let me, let me explain. Um, I think, first of all, that you're exactly right. You don't want to build AI systems that simply recapitulate human limitations. And that's, in fact, one of the problems with the Markram approach, is if you literally had a neuron-by-neuron simulation of the human brain, but you didn't understand how that simulation worked, you just captured the brain, then you just have one more you know, flawed human brain to work with. That's not necessarily such a great advance. Yeah. What you really want to do, the reason that I think we should do the reverse engineering, is so that we can understand those aspects that humans do well. So you don't want to make an artificial intelligence system that does arithmetic the way that people do, the way people do it. You know, they lose track of the ones they're supposed to carry. They get confused. So a problem with the memory system I was talking about is we have interference. So we can't keep the columns straight and we have trouble remembering, you know, times tables and square root tables are impossible for us. So we don't want to carry all of that baggage over. I absolutely agree. But I still think it's worth trying to understand how we do the things we do because there's some things we do really well that the machines don't. So if we could start to kind of understand how the brain encodes its circuitry and how it connects to psychology, then we could look at the things that humans do better. For example, common sense reasoning. So take intuitive physics. We're very good at rapidly calculating what's going to happen if I say drop an object, and we don't need to know every detail of the scenario. So the computer way of understanding physics right now is you have a perfectly detailed model of everything that's going on, and you run a complex simulation. And that works fine for simple solid objects like um, the, the alphabet blocks that a baby might have. But it doesn't work very well for things like if you were cracking an egg, the, the Simulations just aren't able to do that. Um, and human beings are very gifted at sort of understanding, you know, 80% of what's going on and making a really good guess. We're not perfect at it. We make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're pretty good at everyday physical reasoning. And we don't know how to program that into a machine. And that's an example where if we could reverse engineer how the humans are doing this trick, we might be able to better build machines to do that that aren't just relying on simulations where you know every detail. Mm-hmm. So just to sum that up, I mean, the trick is to reverse engineer the basic structure of the human mind so that we can borrow the useful things. And we don't, we don't want to bring them all over. Mm -hmm. So then you do, it it does seem that you do think that there is some merit to uh, uh, reverse engineering the human brain in in principle. However, you do have serious uh, issues with Ray Kurzweil's uh, proposed uh, Pattern recognition theory of mind specifically. Yeah, so um, I should say my editor gave the title of the dubious theory of mind. So the dubious wasn't my word, but uh, I have some reasons um, to be skeptical. Here, here's in a nutshell. Okay. My, 
I think that the idea that Ray puts forward in the new book um, of a hierarchical pattern recognition machine is, first of all, not a new idea. So, I mean, I think his title is a bit oversold. He says, um, you know, I'm blanking on the title, How to Create a Mind. Um, and then The Secret it, of Human Thought Revealed. The Secret of Human Thought Revealed. Um, uh, we just turned my my interview into an advertisement with his little product placement there. Um, so the That's secret of probably his editor too with the subtitle. <laughs> That's probably true. Um, so I don't think that the book really reveals any secret that we didn't already know. I think that people have been working on models like that for about thirty years. Um, uh, the neocognitron model by Fukushima is a very similar concept. So I don't think there's something new there. But aside from that, the question is: Is it sufficient? Does it work? And I think that the answer is sort of for certain circumstances, but not at all for others. So the thing it works best for is things like visual recognition and speech recognition, not natural language understanding, which I want to hold distinct. But if you have a small set of categories and you want to pick out the elements in that category, so which of these digits could I be reading or which syllable or phoneme am I hearing, it turns out that these kind of hierarchical pattern recognition systems are quite good at that. They're not perfect, but they're pretty good at it. Um, even then, there are limits. So the best of those is probably Google's cat detector that um, got a lot of press over the summer. And it's much better than any that's come before. And that technology called um, deep learning, it's a variation on deep learning, has done better than any of these hierarchical pattern recognition systems before. And I think for good reason. I think that they're very powerful systems. But even those are limited. So the Google cat detector, when it was confronted with 20,000 examples, was only at about 16% correct, which is not human-level performance. Vision is another thing that we're better um, at the machine. There are little narrow domains where a machine can do better. So a machine can learn to recognize a stop sign better than a person if you tune it up on stop signs and nothing else. But I look into your room and I see a whole bunch of different objects. I see a bicycle in the corner, even though it's occluded. Um, I don't see the full bicycle, but I can still recognize it. And I see a lamp and I see all these different objects. I understand the relations between them in a naturalistic setting. Machines aren't very good at that yet, even though they're using hierarchical pattern recognition. So it's a technology that's very well known. It's used all the time, but it's not very good at logical deduction, at abstract inference. It's good at recognizing categories. And that's one of the things that humans do well. Still do better, in fact, than those machines. Um, but there are lots of other things that those particular devices aren't particularly good at. And I think there are sort of two problems with Ray's book. One is that he sees that as a solution to all of cognition, and I don't think it's realistic. And the other is that he doesn't actually engage in the details of psychology. So if you really want to understand at least how human beings do things, then you need to engage in the literature and psychology. There are lots of interesting results, like the fact that young children seem to know that objects still exist even when they don't see them anymore, or the fact that we are able to recursively build up new sentences out of smaller sentences, or the fact that we give tips to people that we're never going to see again at restaurants that we've never been to. There are all these sort of idiosyncrasies and interesting detail that a psychologist thinks that's what studying the human mind is about, and he just didn't really engage in that. So he took an engineer's approach, and he said, well, this is a technique that might work. And he generalized it, but he didn't engage enough with psychology. If you look at who endorsed his book, his his blurbers are people that are in engineering. He didn't really, I think, consult enough with psychologists. I think um, that was the weak point in the book. Marvin Minsky said that's the best book that Ray has ever written. I, I saw that Marvin said that. But Marvin's not a psychologist, um, and and I I was a little surprised by it. I, I think that um, you know it's not as strong a book as Marvin's suggesting, and other people liked it too. I mean, the president of MIT thought it was a great book, um, but I think from the perspective of psychology, it falls short. Mm -hmm. So basically, you, we are kind of reverting to your previous point, which was that you think that in the short term, at the very least, psychology would be much more a fruitful way of pursuing that goal and neuroscience would come much or engineer the engineering approach would come much later in the game. Yeah, I mean we really want to have them work together. So I mean the weakest bridge that you mentioned, yes. The biggest thing about Kurzweil's book is he didn't take seriously the bridging you have to do between real empirical human psychology and the neuroscience end. So I don't want to counsel that we shouldn't do the neuroscience um, or that we should do the psychology on its own. We really want them to be working together. Mm -hmm. So 
concerned about approaches that put all of the, the chips down on the neuroscience side because I think psychology has a lot to tell us and I think we're not really going to figure out the problem until we sort of work from both ends. Mm-hmm. So is that the reason why, for example, most recently, in addition to people like Marvin Minsky, but Google embraced Ray and made him, I think, head of their engineering and... Uh, uh, he's going to be working on improving machine intelligence with them. And, and there's other people who have uh, highly praised his books, uh, his book, that book in particular, such as Peter Norwick, uh, who is uh, one of the people behind uh, Google's attempt to create AI. And I mean, Google itself as a company doesn't see itself as a search engine company, but more like an artificial intelligence company where, as Eric Schmidt put it a few years ago, they want to know what you would like to to do or see or find before you even know it. (laughs) Um, So, Gary, are you there? Yeah, I was. I wasn't quite sure what the question was. If we, I, I thought you were. It was a preamble. But yeah, yeah, it, it is a preamble. Uh, so, so is that the the question was basically is Google basically just coming at it from the simply limited engineering approach, and is that why they're embracing Ray Kurzweil and seeing that there's benefit to his work and his ideas? Well, I mean, I I can't speak for Google. I think because that they're mainly an engi- a company of engineers in a way. <laughs> They, they don't seem to be very uh, engaged in psychology, at least. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I might have made a different appointment. And of course, they have enough resources that they can hire a lot of people to do a lot of different things. Um, I was a little bit surprised by the appointment because Ray hasn't really been actively involved, so far as I know, in engineering for a while. So he did some great stuff early in his career engineering wise so um, you know, he's one of the pioneers in speech recognition but the co- general kind of work that he was talking about in his book there are other people that are sort of more actively involved in it so Jeff Hinton and my NYU colleague Jan LeCun um, are sort of more in the trenches doing that kind of work and I do think if Google's ultimate aspiration is is artificial intelligence and not just search, that you do want to learn some things from human beings. And I've, I've suggested that Ray has not perhaps been as sensitive to those questions as he might be. So, of course, Google can, you know, they can corner the market. They can get all of the interesting thinkers. Huh. Um, they have, you know, they have those kind of resources. And I think, you know, he will do lots of interesting things there. I mean, there's incredible resources, and he's certainly, you know, a very intelligent person, and I'm sure that, you know, he's, he's already started the position. I'm sure he will take it very seriously. Um, I wouldn't want to, you know, totally count against him, notwithstanding the, you know, the critique I have of his recent writing. So uh, let me give you two other examples and see how, uh, and ask you how important do you think they are. And those are the examples of IBM's previous uh, benchmark uh uh, PR computers, if I can call them that way, which is first was Deep Blue, uh, with its defeat of Gary Kasparov in 1997, if I remember, and then just recently Watson, of course, uh, basically destroyed the, his human opponents in jeopardy. Um, how important do you think those two machines are on the way of creating AI as a programmer? Well, they both have important lessons. Um, they both have lessons that need to be taken carefully, too. So let's talk about Deep Blue first. Deep Blue showed that some problems don't need to be solved in the ways that humans do, that you can just solve them by force. So there, there's a bit of sort of intelligent pruning in Deep Blue, but mostly there's just a lot of hardware thrown at a very intelligent thrown in a very intelligent way against... By the way, sorry to interrupt you, but David Ferrucci himself hates that term, brute force, just really, really disagrees with him. Uh, And and another person, uh, Dr. Wolfram, who I also interviewed, both of them have serious issues with with the brute force, like... If you can... What's the complaint about it? Well, they they think it's not a matter... It's like saying, you know, our brains have brute force compared to, you know, lower intelligence animals, right? I think that that's fair. I mean, it's fair to say that part of why we're smarter than a mouse is we have bigger brains. I don't think it's at all the answer, but, you know, the the amount of CPU capacity you have and the amount of memory you have on board obviously matters. Anybody who's ever, you know, worked on the 2005 computer and then been upgraded to a 2010 computer knows that brute force does matter. It is, it is a component. And 
I also use the term to refer to different kinds of solutions. So there are solutions where you very deeply analyze particular problems, use a lot of knowledge and so forth. And there are solutions where mostly what you do is just explore every possibility. Mm-hmm. The truth is somewhere in between there, but it's closer to the let's just look at every possible chess position faster than the human can and we'll, we'll do better that way. Yeah. And the same algorithm that Deep Blue runs, but on a machine that was a tenth, a ten thousandth as quick, it wouldn't do that well, right? It, the the speed of the machine, the number of processors involved, um, the custom hardware—it's all very important to the solution of that problem. You can't can't sort of sweep that under the rug. That's the fact of the matter. And the point that I was going to want to make is that that kind of solution has become very popular to just throw a lot of hardware, get the biggest database available that you can. And so if you look at how um, Google Translate works, for example, they have these massive databases of like Harry Potter translated into seven different languages and they cross-correlate. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it works really well and sometimes it doesn't. If you have something that's far enough away from the database, it doesn't. So you're using a brute force, not particularly... Um, complex technique, but on a very large database and getting very good but not perfect results. And as a psychologist, I'm interested in the difference. So some of the translations that Google Translate gives back, no human would ever respond with. They're, in fact, incoherent. They're not, let's say you go from English to Russian and back to English. They come back as something that isn't English at all. No real human translator would ever do that. You want to understand, if you want to build a better system, how to avoid those errors. And brute force alone is not enough. So let me talk about Watson now. I think Watson is is a deeply interesting system. Um, works better than, honestly, I would have guessed that it would. Um, it uses a lot of sort of high power, what I would call brute force statistical techniques. It also uses a lot of techniques from what some people call GoFi, good old-fashioned artificial intelligence. And sometimes when I hear people talk about Watson, they kind of ignore the GoFi. They say, yeah, look at how much we can do by, you know, um, crawling the web and having fast servers and so forth. But part of what it makes it work is classical techniques, for example, for doing temporal reasoning that borrow from symbol manipulation and classical logic and so forth. The, the real genius of Watson is it's able to combine hundreds or let's say about a hundred different techniques very quickly online. So they have very cool statistical techniques for consolidating competing experts, essentially. And if you think back to Minsky's book about a society of mind, in some ways it's a realization of what Minsky was talking about. There a bunch of different sub-modules, to borrow an idea from Jerry Fodor and Noam Chomsky, they're different modules, they're doing different computations. And what what Ferrucci's group did very cleverly was to combine these things um, that might, for example, give different answers for the problem. They found ways of statistically tuning it so that you could integrate all that information. I think that that's an idea that will stick. I think that, you know, the best AI systems henceforth are going to have to do that. They're going to have to be eclectic in the way that Watson is, so it it combines techniques that are sort of almost philosophically different. You know, the people that originated those different techniques were fighting over them, saying, I've got the better technique. No, I do. And what Ferrucci did in essence, I've never spoken to him, but essentially what he seems to have done is to say to hell with these internecine battles between um, different academics over which of these were going to work better, let's use them all, let's put them all together. Yeah, that's very well said because he he went to great extents during my interview with him to, to stress that same point that you made, that it's very eclectic and it's kind of using not one, but all of these proposed ways of doing it. So the genius comes exactly at that sort of a uh, sifting through and, 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 and creating an algorithm that integrates all of the approaches, which in some ways are, in some cases, at least to some degree, mutually exclusive, which is really hard. I, I think that that's fabulous. Um, I, I think Watson's still got a long way to go. So I, I, it's not the final artificial intelligence system. It still has the problem that a lot of AI systems have of being very focused on a particular task. And I think they're doing some work to, to broaden its reach. But it was kind of conceived of as a program to play Jeopardy, which is a kind of you know narrow task. So what humans still have on Watson, among other things, is the ability to switch tasks, to do very different things, to recruit their information in very different ways. And I'm sure you know IBM is working on that. I don't know the latest details. But Watson itself pretty much does that one thing. It's a one-trick pony. And, and the question will be, how do you revise it? I know they're working, for example, on applying to medical... Uh, yeah, to diagnosing. An example of something I don't think it does very well, um, but maybe they'll be working on, is understanding stories. So any five-year-old can watch a movie and kind of tell you what's going on. And we don't have machines that do that very well. Mm-hmm. 
But let me ask you this, though. When you have, you know, uh, examples like Deep Blue and then Watson um, and all those projects that we've mentioned before, like the Blue Brain project, the whole brain emulation or the Synapse project, do you think that all of that sort of adds up to anything? Is it pointing towards a, some, some direction or is it just basically random shots in the dark? I think that, you know, we learn something from each of these projects. And again, Ferrucci's genius was to try to learn everything that he could from all of the projects. So, um, you know, each one of these projects is going to tell us some truth. I guess as part of me as a scientist, is concerned with how economically do you most efficiently invest in the science so that you get the fastest results. But I don't think any of these projects is telling us nothing. I mean, I think all of them are telling us something. Maybe my least favorite is, in a way, Deep Blue, because I don't think it's t- giving us insight into how human beings are solving the problem, but it's still telling us something. I mean, um, I think people learned a lot about how to build those kind of systems. I think those techniques have a lot of applicability. So, you know, I think there are a lot of great projects out there. There's just a question of, you know, how, how you place your bets, and that, that's really what the job of funding agencies is, is, is to place bets and say, we think that this particular project is more likely to give fruit given this amount of dollars invested. My sort of push uh, or impetus for, for bringing this up was uh, to sort of uh, guide you to say a little bit more about um, the technological singularity in general uh, and going beyond, you know, Ray Kurzweil's uh, pattern recognition theory of mind, because as we know, Ray often gives these uh, examples as sort of benchmarks on the way towards the singularity. So let me ask you this more ex- explicitly then. So what is your take on the technological singularity in general? Well, I guess the first question you're asking is, is it going to happen? Um, and, of course, different people have def- different definitions of the term singularity. But if you're asking, will we get to the point where machines are as intelligent as people, I think the answer is surely yes. I don't see any principled argument that would say that that's not possible. There are things we could quibble about, like consciousness. We don't have a very good definition of what you mean by conscious experience. And so, you know, depending on how you define it, you might define it in a way that it's just logically not possible for a machine to have it. And I'm not sure that's an interesting question. Um, there is some interesting question about sentience, and I don't know what the answer to that is. But in general, most of the things that human beings can do, you know, they are done by a machine. The brain is a kind of a machine, and we will gradually reverse engineer it, and we will um, eventually be able to build computers that can replicate most of the things that, that we can do. I don't, I don't see any reason to think it won't happen. Now, there's another question, is it going to happen in 20 years? And AI has a sorry history of always saying it's going to be in 20 years. So you go back to Herb Simon in the 1950s, and he was saying it's going to be in 20 years. And, you know, Minsky said it was 10 years later, said it's going to be 20 years. And now Ray is saying it's going to be 20 years. That always seems to be a convenient number that's sort of, you know, I can't quite touch it, but it seems close. Maybe Ray's prediction of 20 years will turn out to be better than Simon's prediction of 20 years. You know, it, it's a little hard to say. I don't think it's 100. So, I, you know, I, I don't think... If Ray is off, he's not off by so much. Well, you know, for me as a philosopher, the the timeline is important, but it's really just a footnote in history. It's just a detail. Uh, the more important thing is the trajectory, is 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 the general direction of things, and and when when it occurs is 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 not so important from my point of view. We can safely say that it's probably going to happen in this century, and you know, from the perspective of the twenty fifth century, they're not going to care whether it was. 2031 or 2059. I mean, it's not going to matter from, from the perspective of our, our descendants. Now, there are other questions involved, like, is the singularity going to be a good thing or a bad thing? Mm-hmm. Um, Ray clearly thinks it's going to be a good thing. You mentioned you interviewed Diamandis, and he clearly thinks it's a good thing. Um, I'm of the more skeptical side. I think it could be a good thing, but that we need to take steps to make sure that it is. So I think that people at what used to be called the Singularity Institute and is in the process of renaming itself, um, those people are interested in the question of what they call friendly AI. And I think that that's a really important question. Nick Bostrom is interested in that question. Um, how do you make sure that the machines don't destroy us? You know, it sounds like, oh, that's just the Terminator, it's Skynet, and, you know, there's no real risk here. Um, that's just a, a bunch of wackos. But I think that there are real risks in building machines that are, you know, much ultimately much more intelligent than us and possibly have access to a lot of resources. So you can think, already we have things like automated trading on Wall Street, and you have 
company that over the summer lost $500 million in like 30 minutes. So that's a case of a pretty smart machine doing, you know, something with that one bit possibly programmed wrong with the power to do what it does on a very large scale. And, you know, machines are better and better at scaling. Google has made real advances in, in like how you can program something on one machine and then scale it across the entire internet. Um, but with that increase in um, computer power of, of all sorts, we have to be careful. And so I don't think we should take it for granted that any of the new technologies in front of us, whether we're talking about nanotechnology or whether we're talking about AI or whether we're talking about biotech, we can't take for granted that they're only going to lead to good things. All of these things have risks with them, and I think it's important for society to invest in trying to reduce those risks. And I would say that maybe, um, I don't want to keep picking on Ray, but I'd say that maybe Ray and, and Peter, the Amandas have not um, taken those risks as seriously as I think that we should, which is not to say I think that the out- outcome's inevitably bad. I think that we're maybe at a choice point, and what we want to do is to figure out how to maximize um, the technology so that it does well. My interpretation of Ray and, and Peter's positions is that they're not denying the negative scenarios, but they're simply stressing the positive ones out of the belief that uh, by doing so, you increase the probability that people would focus on those ones and they would therefore be more likely to steer towards and guide our development towards the positive outcomes rather than the negative ones. Just like, for example, when you're uh, riding a bicycle, you basically turn the bicycle in the direction that you're looking at. So if you focus on a tree, chances are you're going to hit the tree. But if you focus on the road, chances are you're going to stay on the road. So I appreciate that argument, but I don't, I don't think I buy it. So I think that there's enough economic investment in all of these new technologies, enough potential that those technologies are going to be pushed no matter what. So Craig Ventner is going to push his biotech stuff, whether or not the rest of the, the world ostensibly cares or supports it or whatever, because there's a lot of money to be made there. Um, same thing with true strong AI. So you've got, um, Right now, you've got search engines that work some of the time, and some of the time, you you just you can't figure out the piece of information you want. You want a particular statistic, and you just can't get it out of the search engine because it doesn't really understand what you want. There is um, one person I spoke to the other day estimated it a trillion dollars to be made um, by someone who can build a strong enough AI system that it can really integrate the information that it understands and really understand your question. So people are going to build that whether or not there's public awareness for the value in doing it. Um, so I don't think it's necessary for the optimist to run around saying it's going to be great when we have strong AI because I think it's going to be built anyway because the business is incentive to do it. I think it's more important actually that we build not a public negativity but a public awareness that we need to prepare wisely for these things. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. So Gary, um, so going back to the topic of uh, friendly AI, do you think that uh, the creation of friendly AI is possible, one, and two, that it's ethically justifiable? Um, I'm not sure I understand the second question. What do you mean by whether it's ethically justifiable? I mean, whether we have the right to do so? Whether we have the right to do so and whether that's not like enslaving or brainwashing from the get-go uh, or creating some kind of a, a slavery uh, laws uh, right. for, 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 for the AIs. So um, Kevin Korb has talked about how Asimov's three laws, in fact, are kind of enslavement. Exactly. Uh, they're basically treating the robots as a second class of citizens who are you know, responsible for taking care of the humans. Um, and I think you know he's got a good point. Whether let me see how to put it. The 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 extent to which it's a valid point depends on how sentient the robots are. So I have no problem with my thermostat taking care of the needs of my heating before its own needs. That seems perfectly reasonable. But maybe as machines got more sentient, that that might become an issue. I do think that it has something to do with the particular laws. So um, I think that the the laws of robotics that we might actually want to institute are not Asimov's. I think they have to be considered carefully, and they do have to take into account the sentience of, of the, the robots or whatever that are following them. Um, but I think that's an issue for crafting the laws in the right ways. Not, I don't think that it means we can't create any such law. But that goes to the first question about what 
you know, how do you build friendly AI? And I will say, frankly, um, though I have clear opinions about a lot of things, I think that that one's beyond me. I think that that's going to take a lot of really clever philosophers working together with legislators and, and and so forth. Um, I think it's a really challenging project. I wrote this piece recently for the New Yorker called Moral Machines, and the scenario there was, well, what if your car is a better driver than you, which I think will certainly be true eventually. The vision's not very good yet, but it, you know, 20 years or something like that, they will be better drivers, and eventually they'll be much better drivers. So human beings have a tendency to space out um, they, you know, every 10 minutes or something like that by one statistic, and probably too simple a statistic, but the fact is that we space out when we're driving. We, we get it, you know, we hear a text message come in or we change the radio or we're talking to our friends. Eventually machines are just going to be better drivers. And so the, the premise of this piece was um, it's going to reach a point where we don't, we're not allowed to drive. There's so much better than us. Then it's it's at least a legal liability issue if you drive yourself. If you cause an accident that your machine could have avoided. Also, the machines are going to be networked to each other, so they're going to have more awareness of where the other cars are than you can ever have. So eventually, I think it's quite true that the machines will be better drivers, and we won't be allowed, or it'll be a legal issue. So imagine your car is driving, or maybe you're just spacing out at the particular moment, and they have control if they know they're spacing out, whatever the details are. And then your car runs... Um, towards uh, a bus or the bus spirals out of control it's full of school children and you're on a bridge and the only real choices are the car can drive you off to save 40 people or it can drive the bus off to save you because you happen to own the car how do we want society to to treat that and if you read the piece carefully you'll see that i don't come out with a verdict at all i say you know it's it's outside of my range if you're a star trek fan i could give you a line that i didn't use in the in the essay but um which is damn it jim i'm an i'm a scientist not an ethicist like <laughs> I don't know what the answers to these questions are. I think they are really hard. And the point of writing this whole piece was just to open the discussion because yeah. it's not a job for one person to figure out what those laws are. You know, it's, I'm it, at least a little bit of an ethicist, and I still can't pretend to give a, a, a good answer myself. <laughs> um, and that I think philosophers will appreciate is this notion of moral progress, right? If you instill the set of laws that we had, um, say, from 1700, you'd be allowing slavery. And, you know, now we think that that's morally wrong. I think we've made moral progress in an objective sense. I mean, people could argue, but I'm, I'm happy to say that we've made moral progress. Well, we don't want to instill, you know, our particular morality if there's still more things that we should be learning and, and then lay that down as unchangeable law. So that raises the issue that maybe the machines should actually be able to make moral inferences. And that's a scary thought because we want them to make the right moral inferences. And how do you do that? I think it's an incredibly difficult problem. I hope that you know some of the young kids who are watching this who are about to go to college or grad school will think about this problem because I think it's a really important one. Well, from my point of view, and that kind of goes back to the ethical issue of uh, creating friendly AI, one thing about ethics is that it cannot be forced upon others. Uh, I believe that ethics can be arrived at only through an internal uh, experience, pondering, and meditation on it. And therefore, uh, connecting back to the previous issue, um, my question would be, how do we, even if we try to, in, the very act of installing ethics within other, maybe if it's a self-driving car, it's a one thing, but if it's another absolutely sentient being, then I would suggest that, we cannot really install any ethics in it. That being, as long as it's sentient in its own right, has the right to autonomously, I believe, arrive at, at its own ethics. Uh, and that's kind of like the double-edged sword, I think, because on the one hand, if we try to force ethics upon, the, upon it, I, I personally think it's a moral, an ethical problem. On the other hand, if it arrives at a sort of an ethics which has total disregard of human life and human value, then there's a, a big problem there. So. I think describing the exactly the right tension, and I just have a sort of minor footnote to that, which is that we as human beings are actually born with some ethical principles. So it's not that our ethics are entirely learned. Paul Bloom and Karen Wynn have great uh, work on children, on how children's uh, sort of ethical values or moral values start. And some of it is almost certainly innate. Some of it is biological. Um, it's wired into the genome in as much as anything can, which is to say that it's not impossible to override whatever innate basis you have. But we have kind of a rough draft, I think, of morality that, does come out of the genome in some form. So even human beings, it's, it's not really the case that 
that everything that we um, know about morality we've acquired through experience. We we do have a starting point that, that we work with, and I think the best that we're going to be able to do with the robots is to give them some starting point, but also give them some freedom. And you're raising just the right question, which is how do you give them some autonomy without risking our species? So um, Nick Boston had this great example of the paperclip maximizer, which is this robot that is designed for the relatively innocuous purpose of building paperclips. And it builds all the paper clips it can with all the materials, all, all the you know tin that it can find on the planet Earth, and then it runs out of tin, and then it says, "Well, where can I get more?" And it starts digging for iron in biological life forms, eventually people. Right? It's a relatively neutral, morally neutral, maybe amoral um, kind of system that could wreak a lot of havoc. You don't want that to happen. How do you keep that from happening? I don't think Bostrom gives an answer, but I think it's even though it sounds a little bit science fictiony and whatever, it, it's really something we have to ponder. Yeah, I agree entirely with you, Gary. And, and uh, I agree also that we do come up with a sort of a rough draft of ethics, but I believe that uh, the crucial part comes afterwards uh, in the form usually of education. When I said experience, I mean also education. And, and education is a way of forming and shaping young minds, be it, you know, human or artificial, uh, towards and steering them towards the direction that we would like to steer them. But in the end of the day, as as autonomous moral agents, they do make the final judgment whether they would go in one direction or another. Uh, Back to the humans for a second. We don't have a strong tradition in this country of moral education, though some people, um, including a relative of mine, uh, have advocated for that very forcefully. Um, but probably we want both for human beings and for the machines some kind of moral education system. You don't when you take a young creature or possibly a young robot, you, you want to, you know, bring them up with your own set of values. And even though you don't want to impose your set of values, you at least want to expose them to what you think is the right kind of thinking. Yeah, as a philosopher, I'm personally very careful with the word morals and moral. I, I usually choose the word ethical and ethics because moral, in my interpretation, has a lot of religious connotations to it. And that's why I'd like to steer away from it usually. Um, but anyway, Gary, um, we've been talking for about 45 or 50 minutes and time is advancing. So let me bring our interview to a close, unfortunately, with the last two traditional questions that I always ask of guests on my show. And so the second last question is, where can people find more about you and your work, Gary? Um, there's a couple places. I have a website, GaryMarcus.com. Um, you can go to Amazon or your favorite retailer. I have four books about the mind, one about neural networks uh, called The Algebraic Mind, one about genes and brain development called The Birth of the Mind, Kluge that we talked about today. Um, we didn't talk at all today about my sort of sabbatical midlife crisis book called Guitar Zero, about to play guitar at the age of 40. So you can certainly learn about some of my ideas through those books. Um, and my, uh, at my website, you can get links to some of my writings. And then at The New Yorker, I've been, um, for the last couple of months, I've been blogging about a lot of these topics. So you can go to The New Yorker and search for my name, and you'll, you'll find uh, a lot of my recent essays. Fantastic. So, Gary, is there a final message, or if you could help people take a single point of this interview with you today, what would you like that to be? I guess what I'd most like to reach is younger kids who might be thinking about going into the cognitive sciences. And um, I hope I've given a sense of some of the important problems to work on. There's a set of ethical problems, how we're going to build machines to have the right set of ethics. And there's a set of bridging problems about how we're going to connect neuroscience to psychology. So if you want to go into this field and you're a young person, I would say don't just be a neuroscientist or just be a psychologist. Try to think about the relation between the two. How do we bridge the brain with the mind? Thank you very much. Fantastic, Gary. Thank you very much for being with us today. Great interview. Bye-bye.